0: listening to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast with Aaron Hale and Mike Ferrier as your hosts. Subscribe to the podcast at canadianstreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria. The sermon text for today's message is found in Luke 16, starting at verse 1, reading from the ESV version. He also said to the disciples there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So, that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much money do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the riches, the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now this is one of those passages
1: that if it were not for the fact that um, we're following Coram uh, Deo's preaching schedule. Pastor Ben had sent me the preaching schedule. Um, if it were not for the fact that this was on the schedule for the Sunday, it's probably not a text that I would naturally gravitate to. Uh, it's one of those parables that a lot of people have um, debated back and forth. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Uh, it almost seems as though he is condoning injustice and uh, crooked business practice And I think a lot of times these are the type of passages of Scripture that people are very happy to just pass over and leave. But we are committed to the whole counsel of God. And we believe that all Scripture is inspired and is useful for teaching, for correction, rebuking. And so we believe that the Lord uh, can teach us from even a difficult passage such as this. Now, we remember in the context, uh, last week... We were in the parable of the prodigal son, which was preceded by a few other parables all dealing with seeking and saving that which was lost. And those parables came in the context of Jesus rebuking um, Pharisees, religious leaders, who were upset at the the graciousness and the kindness that Jesus was showing the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And he was trying to teach them a little bit about God's desire to save sinners and his joy when sinners are found. But you notice this morning, the passage, uh, verse 1 there, we have a little bit of a shift in audience. Um, We are told that Jesus says to his disciples... The following parable. And that's important because if we understand who Jesus is talking to, it helps us to understand what he means. And um, as you've heard many times, context um, is king, and we must keep in mind the context in which Christ is giving this. And so it is given to the disciples specifically, to those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I would not take this to mean only the twelve. Earlier in Luke, Jesus makes a distinction between disciples, those who call upon the name of the Lord, those who are taking the yoke of Christ upon them, following in his teaching. Um, And he makes a distinction between the apostles, the twelve, whom he specifically called for that unique role of apostleship. So this is to the disciples. This is to all who would seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to learn from him, to take up their cross daily and follow him. This is for us this morning just as it was for the Christians and the disciples in the first century. Now, we understand, um, as, as I know Ben has reminded us, and uh, to remind ourselves, parables are given, sometimes they are used to bring understanding and illumination to the kingdom, uh, truth to beauties of God's kingdom about who he is, Um, We tend to think sometimes that parables are only good for making children's books. And that parables are really only useful for teaching children. But us big grown-ups, you know, we want something with a little more substance. The fact of the matter is, parables are a powerful tool where Jesus is illustrating and teaching profound truths of the kingdom of God. But at times the parables also work to bind up the truth. To conceal it from those who have hardened their hearts. And uh, this is one of those parables where we might be tempted to think, surely Jesus does not want us to know what he's talking about. He's just trying to conceal something from us because it seems somewhat confusing. But may we come with hearts eager to learn from the Lord this morning and to be taught by him. So this morning our layout will be, uh, first of all, to just get the, the parable before us to try to understand the picture that Jesus is giving and then there are four lessons that Jesus brings out in response to this parable. So first we'll try to just unpack the parable a little bit, understand what's going on, and then heed what Jesus says regarding his parable. I'm very grateful that he gave the application specifically for the parable. or Otherwise it would have been very difficult to really have confidence in um, discerning what he is wanting to teach us. So first of all, as you... You see here, um, Jesus tells a story, and these are not real people. These are fictional characters that Jesus has created uh, for the purpose of illustration. But no doubt, they are uh, things that the people would understand. And we have this rich man who has a manager. And the manager is put in charge of all that the man has. This was very common in that day, actually. You could even think of um, Joseph in the Old Testament, And uh, do any of the young people remember who um, Joseph, whose house he was put in charge of? Actually, twice this happened to Joseph, who was the first place where he was put in charge of. He was made really a manager of the man's house. Remember the name in Egypt? Potiphar. Remember Potiphar? Potiphar saw the uh, integrity of Joseph. He was hardworking. And in time, Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his entire household. This would have been that kind of position where the person has the authority to make transactions, to do business, to uh, give leadership to his servants and, and, and just manage the entire property. This happened to Joseph really with the pharaoh as well. The pharaoh put Joseph into the, a management position of all of Egypt to navigate through the season of drought. Um, We think of men like Eliezer in the Old Testament was put as a manager over the the household of Abraham. And uh, Abraham actually sent him out to find a wife for his son. And Eliezer goes and ends up finding Rebekah. And uh, in in trusting in the Lord, he he brings back a wife for his son. That's a pretty high uh, level of responsibility. You can imagine someone you trust so much that you're going to... Tell them to go and find a spouse for your child. Well, this is the picture. This manager had been put in charge of all this man had. And we come up to a problem which we can relate to very well. The, it is told that the manager um, was charged with wasting the rich man's possessions. And we understand the frustration of this very well um, you know a manager maybe who does extravagant uh, vacations and clothes himself in extravagant garments, we understand that in our culture today very well, the frustration that comes in watching somebody waste money and uh, perhaps this manager was guilty of uh, extravagant living or perhaps he was mismanaging the property we 're not exactly told, but even on a personal level, as thinking um, as as a uh, as a kid, and, and my dad would so often be uh, hounding us about wasting things. And, you know, you kind of try to tolerate it as a kid. It's like, don't waste the water, don't waste the electricity, don't waste your food, um, don't waste... You know, fuel in the four-wheeler, just driving around needlessly, all of these kinds of things. And uh, as a kid, you are just wondering, what is the big deal? I don't understand what the big deal is. But now, as I have grown up and I have children, uh, I sometimes frighten myself how much I sound like my dad. Because, um, you know, for, for some, maybe we got water from a dugout as a kid. That's how it was. And I, I don't understand why that was such a big deal for dad to use a little extra water to get a little deeper bath uh, because we could just pump water into the dugout from another dugout. But uh, for us, we, we buy our water from the MD. And so at our house, if the pump comes on, it literally feels like pain in my soul when the water pump comes on because I feel like that's money that's leaving my account. I'm going to have to pay for that. And so I'm constantly hounding my children. Okay, when you brush your teeth, you don't turn the water on and leave it. You wet your toothbrush, turn it off, brush your teeth, rinse. You know, you don't have to leave the water running the entire time. And I'm trying to help them conserve the water. Or maybe it's electricity. We understand the frustration of somebody wasting uh, what we deem to be ours. And this is the case with this manager. He is frustrated. He is upset that this manager has been caught wasting his possessions. And uh, he rightly confronts the man and tells him that his days are numbered as his employee, that he gives him what we might call the two weeks notice. He says, okay, you got two weeks to pack up and you're, uh, you're out of here. You're going to be out of a job. You're going to be unemployed because of what you've done. And so then we see the response of the manager. And this is where the parable gets somewhat difficult for us. Um, as we not only see what he does, but the reaction to what he does, the manager, realizing he's about to be unemployed, and we're told that he doesn't, he doesn't want to, he's too weak to dig, so he, he has given his life to a management position, maybe he doesn't feel physically strong enough to do physical labor, and he says, well, I can't, I can't go out and dig can't work in the in the ditches or on the on the farms for a living because I, I won't survive. And he's too prideful to to beg. He doesn't want to be on the corner at the tin can asking for people to give him some money. So he comes up with a plan as to how he might preserve himself, how he might prepare for what he knows is coming—a season of unemployment. And what he does is he goes to the filing cabinet and he opens up. Um, The cabinet that would be outstanding accounts. Uh, The the cabinet where we have a list of all those who have accounts outstanding that they have not paid off. And he takes out those files and he begins flipping through them. And he realizes there's actually some people that owe a large amount of goods to the master. And so he comes up with a plan that if he essentially uh, gives them a break... That when it comes to his time of need, they will in turn help him out. It's this kind of, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And uh, we see this happen even today in business. People will do a favor for someone. And the expectation is, even if unspoken, that there will be a favor coming back in turn. And so as the manager, he does have the authority to some degree to do this. Um, at least until he's been officially removed from the position. And so he goes, and we're told that he comes to some people owing a large amount of oil and wheat, and he basically cuts off a large portion of what they owe. It would be like um, your, your mortgage company calling you up, and uh, maybe someone says on the phone, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm here for just a few more weeks, Um, I'm going to really need some help after I'm gone. I'm being fired. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into your account, and I'm going to take all the interest charges off of your account. And so over the course of the 20 years, you will not have to pay interest, and you will save uh, thousands of dollars in the end. But I need you to also help me once I'm removed. Well, we would... I mean that would be pretty amazing to see all the interest off of a loan, and uh, to be helped in that way and probably eager to help him out when the time comes. But what we also know is he is not thinking about his, his master. He's not concerned about the prospering of his master. He is simply looking out for his own neck and doing it at the expense of his master. And uh, in that sense, it is called the unjust or dishonest manager Or steward. Now, what is really confusing here is the response of the master and the response of Christ. Why in the world would they praise this kind of behavior? And we find um, after he cuts down the bills for these people, the master, um, in verse 8, we're told, commends the dishonest manager. For his shrewdness. And there is the key to the parable. The injustice is not commended. The dishonesty is not commended. But the fact that the man had such foresight. Into what was coming. That he went to such an extreme. To care for himself. To make preparations for himself. Um, It was almost like the master was impressed. With this level of conniving Planning, like so, this is so unbelievable that it's actually impressive. Almost that you would go to such lengths to preserve yourself. This shrewdness, this word that could be maybe like wise, um, careful, uh, shrewd. It it is um, it is this aspect of the man's actions that is being praised, and so that is important if we're going to understand what in the world. Jesus is talking about. So, Jesus then makes this statement, and we'll get into the four lessons uh, from Christ regarding this parable. But before we do that, let me just remind you what Jesus is not saying. Uh, Jesus is not condoning injustice. He's not condoning dishonesty. He's not saying that this is how we should do business and we should seek to get ahead in the world by basically cheating our masters or our bosses. That's not what he's saying. We know in Proverbs 11.1 1, says a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And so Jesus is not contradicting the character of God, in illustrating. And we find what he says, and this will be the first lesson from the parable, is that the followers of Jesus should be the most concerned about preparing for the future. Lesson one is that the followers of Jesus should be most concerned about preparing for the future. Listen to what he says in response here um, at the second part of of verse 8. Uh, This is now Jesus speaking. The parable is finished. And Jesus himself says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And so Jesus is really offering almost a rebuke to the sons of light. Now what does that mean, sons of light? It's a fascinating picture of what it means to be a Christian. I um, personally love the imagery of light that is so prevalent throughout the scriptures, especially the New Testament. Then we understand this picture well. Even children understand the contrast of darkness, um, where you cannot see, where it is a dangerous place to be, moving around in the darkness, and the light, where things are visible, and where uh, things are seen, and we have a sense of security. And so we have this contrast, and Jesus makes the statement, the sons of light contrasted with the sons of this world. What does that mean to be a son of light? And as a little bit of an aside, we need to remind ourselves that humanity is in one of these two camps. Either you are a son of light or you are a son of this world. There is no neutral ground. There is no no man's land that that people are kind of floating around, sitting on the fence, maybe one foot uh, in the kingdom of light and one foot in the kingdom of darkness and they're just not quite decided yet. Either you are a son of the light or you are a son of this age. And what is, um, first of all, frightening to us Is that we know that we are not born as sons of light. Which is a frightening reality. Because it means we are going to be left out of the privileges of the kingdom of light. We will be cut off from the king himself of light. If we are left in our original condition. We are born into sin. We are born into the rebellion of Adam. That we have inherited. And we act accordingly. But what Jesus says... um, is that we can become, there is this sense in which we can become sons of light. And this is comforting to us that we don't either be born um, in this regenerate state or not, but that it is something that happens upon us. Now, we know in a sense... According to God's purpose and election, there is the the determination of God before the foundations of the world to save a remnant, to save an elect. But at the same time, that salvation is realized in space and time. That purposing of the Father happens to us where there is repentance, where there is faith, where the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, regenerates our hearts. We exercise repentance and faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are transferred, Paul says, from the, dark, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so the good news is that if we find that we are not of the light, the call is to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, That we might be brought into the kingdom of light. We might be made um, new by his spirit. We might be, as he told Nicodemus, born again. And so we need to consider, where are we this morning? This parable, Jesus is talking specifically to the sons of light. And if we find in us... No conviction of sin, no delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, no hunger for his word, no love for his people, no concern for the lost, then it would be safe to assume we are not a son of light and we need to repent. We need to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us and we need to be baptized as a declaration of that faith. Jesus said in John 12, 36, While you have the light, believe in the light. That you may become sons of light. That is a very comforting but urgent word. While the light is here, while the gospel is being proclaimed, while this season of grace is experienced, we must become sons of light by believing in Christ, who is the light of men. But as we consider what Jesus is saying, we understand then this distinction the sons of light, the sons of this world and he is really rebuking the sons of light, the children of the kingdom, that they often seem to concern themselves less with the coming kingdom, with the day of the Lord that is quickly approaching, than this world concerns themselves with their own future. The, the parable of the dishonest manager is illustrating a worldly kind of shrewdness, a worldly kind of preparation, an unjust... Um, way in which this world might care for themselves might prepare for themselves and yet Jesus is saying as this unjust man would go to such lengths would be so daring so bold as to as to basically undermine his master to look out for his own interests how much more should the sons of light consider the future that is before us consider what is coming very quickly and are we being even more shrewd more bold more courageous more concerned with that day as we live our lives in the time that god has given even the animals know how to prepare for the future Um, sadly it won't be that long and we'll start to see animals preparing for the coming winter right we're kind of in denial that that's coming again, but the reality is that you'll see the squirrels gathering up their seeds and stockpiling. And, and uh, the, the bears will be gorging themselves, putting on as much fat as they can in order to hibernate through the winter. And, and the birds will be fattening themselves, preparing to migrate south that they have enough sustenance to make the journey And I recently found out that even plants in the later part of the season begin storing up nutrients um, to make it through the winter. God has illustrated in his creation um, what it means to prepare, what it means to be ready. And how much more, as the children of light, should we be preparing? We know that we say... A day of judgment is coming where Christ will descend and he will judge the living and the dead. We know that the scriptures tell us the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. Can you imagine such a day when the the heavens are rolled up like a big piece of paper? And... We are told that all will be laid bare with fire and that God will destroy the wicked. He will cast out the unjust and those who believe in Christ will be welcomed into the new heavens and earth. And Christ will dwell among his people forever. And we know that this day is coming and yet does our life reflect the kind of shrewdness, the kind of boldness that actually believes it? Or are we, like the world, concerned with hoarding the wealth of this age that we might enjoy its pleasures though they are fleeting and though they will fail? And I admit, um, living in our affluent culture, it is a daily battle to crucify our flesh, crucify our desires, and to reorientate ourselves upon the eternal, upon the kingdom of God. It is extremely difficult when you live in a society that not only worships affluence, but has obtained the ability to gain it, to go after it. Um, Of course, we know God has allowed this, but it is, I believe, one of the greatest things the church in North America faces, is to battle the temptation to seek the wealth of this age. We look at our brothers and sisters across the ocean and uh, maybe not even that far away these days. And there is persecution where their lives are in danger, where they're being slaughtered, where they're being put in prison because of their faith. And and we want to say, oh, you know, that that is so bad if only they experience the the freedoms that we do. And, And while there's a sense in which that's true, we should give thanks for the freedom. Do we realize the danger that our souls are in living in such a place? where affluence is praise, where we can become gods unto ourselves, and where we can obtain all of the securities that we think we need, like the rich fool who builds bigger and bigger and bigger barns, thinking that he is going to eat, drink, and be merry, but not realizing that very night his soul will be required of him. Who really is in the greater danger? Those who are fleeing for their life in persecution or those who have convinced themselves that they will get along fine without a savior. And I fear that we must heed the words of Christ. We must test ourselves daily or else this creeps into our souls. And suddenly we find ourselves putting our hope in the wealth of this age and maybe like me, sometimes you feel frustrated with the Lord because there is a lot of wealth around us and you may feel like if I could just have a little bit more would be wonderful. And uh, I know we all feel this at times. And yet maybe in the Lord's kindness at times he weans his children off that we would gain an appetite for that which is eternal. Um, you know, if we withhold an ice cream cone from my child at, at 5 o'clock because we know supper is coming and if he eats the ice cream, he's going to be sick and he's not going to eat the food which will actually nourish him and he might feel, you know, somewhat cheated in that moment but it is an act of love and I think the same for God as he continues to discipline us and give us a hunger for the eternal. We must be a people who prepare for the future, the, 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 the day that is coming. And the second lesson then, um, first of all, that we are people who prepare for the future, the kingdom coming, um, the kingdom that's in our midst already. Secondly, that we would leverage the wealth of this age to invest in the one to come. Listen to what Jesus says. First, he rebukes really the sons of light that they're not as shrewd in their, pre- in their preparation as the world. Secondly, he says in verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What in the world is Jesus talking about using unrighteous wealth? Um, That phrase is just a way of talking about the wealth of this age. He's not saying to go about it in an unrighteous way. He's talking about the wealth of this age, money. He's talking about material possessions, things that we obtain. That are not eternal, eternal, what an interesting way to talk of it. Unrighteous wealth. could you imagine going into the bank and saying, "Excuse me, sir, I just I have some unrighteous uh, Mammon here, I have some unrighteous wealth, and you might if I put it into your account you know, but, unrighteous wealth, what are you talking about? or you go to the grocery store and I have some unrighteous wealth i 'd like to purchase some groceries here you go, fifty dollars um, you need you know, and we just think of it as this unrighteous wealth not that it is evil not that it's wrong to have it but rather that it is not eternal it is fleeting and jesus goes so far to say that it will fail it will fail all those who put their trust in it and so we are to work we are to even obtain wealth if we are given the opportunity but we are to leverage that wealth to invest in the age to come. What does Jesus mean by, and you see the parallel with um, the story that he just told, using the wealth we have to make friends for eternal dwellings. What is he talking about? Well, if you imagine um, the various ways that we can invest into the kingdom of God with our wealth, not doesn't just mean money, it might mean Um, possessions that you have, resources that you have, abilities that you have, time that you have, what do you do with it? What, What is your priority in using it? And Jesus is saying, you should invest it into eternal things. Invest it back into the kingdom. And when you do that, you will receive the reward in eternity. You could imagine um, investing some money, maybe into uh, an organization like the Gideons, who who make it their aim to put to put Bibles um, all throughout the land, and uh, as as they're able to go into schools and and uh, hotels and to place Bibles in these places, and as if you have some wealth, instead of instead of maybe you know getting a new iPhone or something, um, which again it's not evil to have a new phone, but maybe you say you know what instead of Upgrading my phone again, which I don't really need at this time. I'm going to invest that money back into the kingdom. I'm going to invest it into something that is going to matter for eternity. And someone picks up this Bible. Maybe in their hotel room. And they've come to the end of their, their rope. And they open the scriptures. And as they read, they encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the Lord regenerates their heart. And they're they're saved. Imagine your joy coming into heaven and seeing those who, through your resources, through your investment, have been brought to Christ. And the joy of seeing those whom you've been able to impact through your resources for the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is talking about. Just as this unjust manager would leverage his position, leverage his influence to prepare to make friends For the future, Jesus is saying we should be all the more leveraging our resources, our wealth, to invest in the kingdom that we might receive the reward of friends in the eternal dwellings with God. Jim Elliott, a famous missionary who gave his life on the mission field, said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If we give, The wealth that we can't even keep. It's been said that you don't see U-Hauls behind hearses. Right? And even the ancient uh, pharaohs. Micah was studying a little bit about ancient Egypt. And how they would amass their gold and their wealth. And they would bury themselves with it in their tombs. Thinking that it will go with them into the afterlife. And of course we find uh, in these tombs nowadays a body of uh, uh, the, the, the mummified king whose soul is long gone and all of the wealth still lying there in dust. It does not go with us. It fails. It, it, it is temporary and yet we can leverage it. We can use it to invest into the kingdom of God. Be like Tabitha in Acts 9, um, also called Dorcas, who would seem to be a woman of great wealth. She had a house. She had the ability to make clothing and, and give goods. And, and we're told in Acts 9.36 that she gave to the poor. She was generous with those in need. And she leveraged her wealth for the kingdom of God. Let us be those kind of people as the Lord gives us the ability to do so. So we are to prepare. We are to be mindful of the future that is coming. We are to leverage our resources As God enables and we are to be faithful stewards of all that God has given us. Um, See what he says in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is In that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? This idea of stewardship, I think, is one of the most helpful realities in the Christian's life. And it it applies to everything. Um, If we really begin to understand that as children of God, those who have been brought into the family of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are now his child, we are under his authority, we are under his rulership, and that all that we have is his. There is a tremendous amount of comfort and peace that should come as a result of that knowledge. I mean, think about a child. And as parents, we know that we have to have money set aside for groceries, which can be an astronomical amount if you have children these days. And it can sometimes be frightening because you're looking at the next month and you're thinking, Oh my goodness, we need this much money for groceries and this much money for phone bill. And, 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 and where's this all going to come from? And we're trying to manage it. We're trying to make sure there's food on the table. But for the child, there is a sense of carefreeness. They, they, I mean, do you ever have a child come and say... Um, Am I going to have lunch next month? Like, is there going to be, you know, generally no. Generally, a child isn't even really thinking about the next meal. They All they know is they just ate and they're content for now and they're happy to go and play. And there's this sense of, of security, this sense of, of joy that comes as a result of being under the authority of a mom and dad. And children, you can even thank your parents. Um, make sure you thank them, that they're caring for you, that when they feed you, say thank you. One of the, the blessings to, my, to me is sometimes I'll come home and you're tired, you've been working all day, and uh, my wife or my boys will just say thank you for working for us today. And, and that's a tremendous uh, um, encouragement to me as a father, because they are just simply thanking you. And I encourage you young people to do that. But as children of God, should we not also experience something of what it is to be a child? Something of what it is to know that he is in control. He owns all of this. This is actually not mine at all. Um, I find this very helpful, especially with vehicle problems. I, I despise uh, maintaining vehicles. They're, they're kind of a necessary evil to me. You know, I'm grateful to have a vehicle, but it's so painful spending money on them. And yet sometimes when the, the, the vehicle's breaking down or it's giving trouble, um, I don't know who I heard it from, but he said they would just pray and, and tell the Lord that, um, Lord, uh, your van is broken again and you're going to need to fix it. <laughs> you're going to need to come up with the resources to get this thing back on the road. And, you know, that helps. Because we remind ourselves that ultimately this is not mine. And ultimately God has said he will not leave us nor forsake us. He points to the sparrows and he says, do they not have meals? He points to the flowers and say, are they not clothed in beauty? And you as my child, will I not see you through? And we realize we are stewards. We are entrusted with that which is ultimately God's. Even the extremely wealthy in this age who might think they have a lot of possessions, ultimately it is God's. He owns it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he will bring all to account for what they have done with it. And so let us be faithful, whether in little or in much, that we would rejoice in the Lord's care, in his promises. Let us seek to leverage it as much as we can, raising up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, being hospitable, being generous with those in need, using it to advance the kingdom as we are able Let us live as such people, being faithful stewards. And as we are faithful in little, God says, I will put you over much. Um, We won't turn there now, I'll just reference it, the parable of the talents in Luke 19. This parable where, you remember it, uh, different men are allotted different amounts of wealth. And uh, five talents, three and one and... The first two are faithful to reinvest it, to use it, to leverage it, to um, bring back a return to their master and the last buries his in the ground. What is shocking about that parable, I guess it is just a page over, um, is a talent in that culture is a massive amount of money. It's not a talent as though a skill. We think of talents as, you know, I can jump really high or play an instrument or sing. That's not a talent here. This is a a massive amount of money. And so when the man is given five talents, he is given perhaps what would translate to us millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he is to invest it. But what is shocking is that when Jesus returns... um, He he says, you have been faithful over little in um, verse 17 of chapter 19. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And it is this idea that what is considered massive wealth in this age, Jesus references as pocket change, as, you know, lunch money. Millions and millions of dollars. Very little you will be given. Much, um, as one preacher said, when when the new heavens and new earth are established, we will all get real jobs, right? We will we will be entrusted with that which is eternal, that which is is incomparable to the smallness of what we are called to steward now. And of course, this is backwards to the thinking of this world, but Jesus takes the most extravagant wealth that this age knows. And he refers to it basically as pocket change in comparison to the wealth and the the riches of his kingdom and dwelling with him and being co-heirs with Christ. So we see that we're to prepare for the future. We see that we are to leverage resources for the kingdom. We are to be faithful stewards. And then Jesus closes the section with a... Almost a proverb that no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. And so again, we need to examine ourselves. Uh, I know for me, I feel a constant pull to serve the pleasures of this world, to serve the pursuits of this life. But as Christians, we are to be devoted unto God. We are to be single-minded in that sense that we seek to glorify God. Paul would even say, in eating and drinking, something as ordinary as eating and drinking, when we do it, we do it in the sense that we are seeking to glorify God in whatever we do, whether it's working um, or helping with the children or making a meal or paying the bills or driving for groceries or coming here to worship together, that there's this sense that our life is wholly devoted to God and that all we do is to glorify Him. And in that way, we don't serve the master of wealth of this age, but we serve God. You could imagine a slave in that day, um, even say Joseph, for example, we mentioned him already, when he was sold in Egypt on the slave market, say the bidding you know, starts and someone says, I'll give you, you know, 50 denarii or, or whatever the going uh, form of money was there. And someone you know, bids them up and they keep bidding back and forth. And, and uh, the auctioneer finally just is frustrated and says, you know what, how about you both be his master? For this price, you can both be the slave's master. And and how impossible that would be for him to serve two masters. It would be impossible. And we know that even in a job, if you commit yourself to full-time work for somebody, you can't turn around and commit to someone else for full-time work because it would be conflicting. You would need to be at this job at this time and the other boss would want you there and, and they would both be frustrated with you and in the end you would probably lose both jobs. Um, We understand that. And in the same way, our devotion to God should be unchallenged by anything else in our life. And this is something we need to continually confess. We need to ask the enabling of the Holy Spirit in our life to guide us, to strengthen us. We need brothers and sisters in Christ who will sharpen us, who will confront us, who will pray with us, who will open the word to us and keep us accountable because we are prone to wander. Are you looking to Christ this morning? Are you a child of light? If not, then flee to Christ. Confess your sin and he will save you. And for those who are looking to Christ, let us live in light of what is to come. And let us confess our um, failures to seek first the kingdom of God, but also trust that he will finish the work he's begun in us and press on toward the prize. Let's pray, and we will have a few closing songs. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for thousands of years, Lord, through men and women who fear you, Lord. We thank you for having it in our own language that we can read it. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that will guide us into all truth. You said that will take what is Christ's and make it known to us and give it to us. Lord, we ask for your help as we navigate through this life. Lord, as we struggle with the balance of working hard and trying to provide. And, and yet, Lord, at the same time, trusting you and uh, Lord, seeking first your kingdom. Guide us, we pray, Lord, give us. Um, we pray you give wealth, uh, Lord, that we might have the hearts to give it back unto you, Lord, and that you would show us areas, even maybe small areas in our life where we can leverage what you've given for your kingdom and that we would be good stewards. We'd manage it, Lord, in a way that's pleasing to us and uh, help us to be grateful as your children. And I ask this now in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast. If you have any questions, a comment, or a podcast topic, contact us today at canadianstreetlight.ca. solely Deo Gloria!